All right, well, welcome today. Uh, if this is your first time, I want to extend a special welcome to you and say that I'm, I'm exceptionally glad that you're here with us today. Uh, also, if, if you're here for the first time or maybe for the first time in a while, I just want to kind of explain to you what our typical pattern is here on Sunday mornings. Uh, typically, we just preach through the book of a Bible. And so right now we're in the book of Colossians, and every single week my job is just to tell you what I think the Word says. And so... Um, Particularly when we come to a passage like the one we're going to preach today, I just want you to know that's our pattern here. I didn't just pick this out of uh, out of thin air, right? This is this is what the word says. We don't need to apologize for it, but I think you need to know this is our rationale. We just want to preach what the word of God says, and so let me let me just pray and ask that God would bless our time together today. Uh, Father, in Isaiah fifty-five, you say that your word will not return to you empty. We want to stand on that promise today. We want to believe with all of our heart that your word will not return empty, that it will accomplish all that you desire. And so, Father, uh, I don't know what you will do amongst the congregation today with your word, but I'm 100% confident of this, that you will do exactly what you want to do and that you will work in the way that you want to work. And so the confidence that we have today as a church is that your word is living and active and that it will accomplish all that you desire. And so we want to faithfully and boldly, unashamedly say what the Word of God says. So Father, help us to be courageous today. Help us to be humble enough to admit that we need guidance. Help us to be humble enough to admit that we are not God and that we don't have all the answers, but you do. And so Father, we want today, we want today to hear from you. We're praying that's exactly what would happen. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So here's a question for you. What does genuine Christianity look like? What does genuine Christianity look like? Does it mean that you come to church every Sunday? Does it mean, does it mean that you get involved in church activities? Maybe you're a Sunday school teacher, or maybe you volunteer to be a part of the cleanup crew. Does it mean that you're involved with some sort of midweek church activity, whether it's a care group or a Bible study or a discipleship group? Well, maybe it looks like all of those things, but I would argue that the true test of our Christianity is oftentimes not found in what we do on Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon in our case, nor is it found in the amount of church activities that we're involved with, but rather the true test of our Christianity is oftentimes found in our interactions at home and to a lesser extent maybe in the workplace. The fact of the matter is that I can learn a lot more about you and your belief in the gospel by watching how you interact with your family at home than I can by watching how you interact with people here at church for a couple of hours. Because the reality is that we can oftentimes hide who we are when we come here and we gather for a couple of hours or maybe when we're part of a care group during the week and we can put on a certain face that this is who we are. But the reality of who we are oftentimes comes out at home. And again, I would argue also in the workplace. And so what we do at home matters. Christianity is a religion that is meant to be lived out every single hour of every single day, including in our homes, maybe even especially in our homes. I think that oftentimes we get this idea that church is just a place we go to, or that living for Christ is just something we do every now and then, but the reality is that every single moment of the day is to be lived for Him. Martin Luther once said this, he said, what you do in your house is worth as much as if you did it up in heaven for our Lord God. Sometimes we think that we can do whatever we want at home or that that's not really a part of our Christianity, but nothing can be further from the truth. What we do at home is worth as much as if we would do it up in heaven. And yet when you look at the world around us, it's obvious that the home is in a state of disarray. Confusion abounds as to what a family should look like. 
Confusion abounds as to what a healthy marriage should look like. Confusion abounds as to how we should parent children in an age like ours. And if that's true of the culture at large, and I think it is, I would also say it's true of the church. And so for that reason, I think that we should slow down in this part of Colossians over the next three weeks and make sure that we understand this passage carefully. In Colossians 3.18 to 4.1, there are nine verses. They're commonly referred to as household codes or household tables. It's just nine verses, but it's nine verses I think are increasingly important given the challenges that we face today. Again, these are commonly referred to as the household codes, and they examine three types of different relationships. In Colossians 3.18 to 4.1, nine verses, it examines three different relationships. The relationships between husband and wives, between parents and children, and the relationship between slaves and masters. Now that last one is a little bit different for obvious reasons, and, and we'll talk about that one at length here in two weeks. But given the importance of the everyday nature of Christianity and of the confusion that is prevalent in our culture, I think it's necessary that we just slow down here in this part of the book of Colossians and that we study each of those relationships one at a time. So today we're looking at Colossians 3, verses 18 and 19. It's a passage that Rob just read, but I think is worth reading again. It's a very short passage, very powerful, and to be honest, it's much debated. Colossians 3, verse 18 says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. All right, so it's probably necessary that I preface what I'm about to do today with a few things. First of all, you need to know this, that the Bible, we believe, as Christians, we believe that this book is the Word of God. We believe it's the Word of God. We believe that it was written by humans. For example, the book of Colossians was written by Paul as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In such a way that the book of Colossians, for example, was written exactly how Paul wanted it written. But at the same time, it was written exactly how God wanted it written. And so we would say, yes, Paul is the author of Colossians, but the ultimate author of Colossians in all of Scripture is God. That's why we refer to this book as the Word of God. And so listen, we do not need to apologize for what it says. And when we come across a piece of Scripture that we don't like, or that we don't agree with, the issue is always with us and never with Scripture. So I think we need to start there and say that the Word of God is infallible. This is the historic Orthodox position over thousands of years, that this book is without error. And so we don't need to apologize for what it says, nor do we need to be ashamed. And certainly as a teacher, the one thing you should want from me is that I teach what I, you should want me to teach what I think it says. If I'm not teaching the Bible, you might as well just kick me out because this is the only thing I have to offer you that's of any value. My opinion does not matter. But what you should want from me and what you should expect from me as your pastor, in fact, fact, what you should demand of me as your pastor is that I would preach to you week after week what I think the Word of God says. And so there's no need to apologize for what we read here in Colossians 3, 18 and 19. That said, I think we would be sticking our heads in the sand a little bit if we didn't acknowledge that not everyone in our culture loves these two verses especially verse 18, which tells wives to submit to their husbands. In fact, there are many who hate these verses. Maybe some of you today even feel a little bit uncomfortable. And so given the importance of this passage and the debate that surrounds it, I think perhaps before we dive into what it means, I think we should take the time to answer some of the objections that people commonly have against this passage. And again, we're not doing this because we have a need to apologize. We don't. But rather, we recognize that for some The objections that are made to this passage are a legitimate pebble in your shoe. And what I mean by that is this. It is hard for you to walk forward in obedience to this command 
because you have these objections which are lodged like a rock in your shoe and it makes you hard to go forward, right? And so I think it's helpful for us to try as much as we can to take these pebbles out and to throw them aside so that we can then move forward in obedience. And so let me say this. The objections to this passage are many, and I'm not going to cover all of them. I'm just actually going to cover the ones that I've heard most commonly. And again, uh, I'm sure that there's more complicated arguments we can make about this, and I don't want, I want to make sure that you understand we're not bringing up these objections because we need to apologize. But I think we do need to be aware that there's much debate surrounding verse 18 in particular. So let me just walk through the objections that we've, I've heard often and why I think that they're not valid. All right, so here's objection number one. This passage is out of date and it's irrelevant for modern times. Now this is an argument that people frequently use for scripture. Maybe it's not even just this verse, but whatever verse it is that they don't like, they say something to this effect, that the Bible was written thousands of years ago and therefore it cannot speak into modern issues. So first of all, I think we need to answer that by pointing out that the Bible itself claims to be the word of God. The Bible itself claims to be living and active. In other words, this book is not like any other book because this book has God as its author. It's without error. It's living. It's active. God is infinite and eternal. And as such, he can speak to issues in such a way that transcends times and cultures. In other words, there is no other book like this book because this book has God as its author. So with that statement as the baseline, let me, let me kind of offer that up as the umbrella statement that we, we must acknowledge, again, this is the historic Christian position that this is the word of God. We must acknowledge this is the word of God and as such, it has the ability to transcend time and culture. That said, let me make two arguments as to why I think this objection that it's out of date and it's irrelevant for modern times are not valid. The first is a biblical argument, okay? So uh, there are several passages that actually address this idea of male headship. When we say male headship, what we mean is this, that men have a different role to play in the homes than women. This is what's commonly known as the complementarian position. This is Colossians 3.18, that men are to love their wives, that they are to lead their families, and that women are to submit and follow the leadership of the husbands. This is commonly known as the complementarian position, meaning that the two positions complement one another. We'll talk more about that here in just a second. There are several passages in Scripture. This is not the only one which addressed this issue. One of them is in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, uh, because of the fact that we're limited on time here, we're not going to go to that passage. And I would encourage you, it's, in, it's printed in your bulletin if you want to go look at it this week. But let me just kind of summarize what happens in 1 Corinthians 11. In 1 Corinthians 11, there is likewise a call for male headship. And in that passage, it's rooted in creation. So what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 11 is he goes back to Adam and Eve. And he says that because Adam was formed first and then Eve, there's a distinction in the role that men and women are to play. So again, this position is typically labeled as a complementarian position, meaning, now get this, that men and women are equal in personhood. They are equal in value. They're equal in dignity, but they have different roles to play that complement one another, hence complementarianism. So what happens in that 1 Corinthians 11 passage is that Paul appeals to creation as evidence that God has set things up in this way, that men are to play roles of leadership both in the home and in the church. In other words, what he's doing in 1 Corinthians 11 is making a, not a cultural argument as to why men and women have different roles, but rather he's rooting the argument back in creation. He's not just speaking to the Corinthians and saying, this is your culture. He goes all the way back to creation and he says, this is the way that God has always made it. And as such, he's making the argument that from the beginning, God has ordered the world in this way. This is the way that God has designed the world. 
for men and women to play different roles. So given the fact that he goes all the way back to creation to make this argument, I don't think you can simply dismiss Colossians and say, well, that was just for the people of Coloss. Because I think what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians, what the Bible is doing as a whole, is making this argument based on the way that God created things from the beginning. So that's the biblical argument as to why I don't think this is out of date. Let me make a cultural one as well. I don't think there's any doubt that most people in this culture, especially in the Northeast, would be passionately in disagreement with Colossians 3, 18 and 19, especially verse 18. But can anyone say with a straight face that in our culture, the way we are currently doing marriage is working? Right? So what I'm saying is the culture is saying this is wrong, this is not right, and yet I'm asking the question, is the way that we are doing marriage as a culture, is it working? Is it working? I could give you all kinds of statistics about marriage and show you that marriage is not going great in our country. But listen, the fact is you don't need statistics because you know that's the case. Right? Every person in this room knows multiple people have been divorced. And aside from the discussion about divorce, I think we know that most marriages are not happy. I grew up in a small town in Iowa, and so I knew most of my friends' parents fairly well. And of all the friends that I had in high school, almost all of them, all of their parents were on their first marriage, which was actually pretty amazing, right? But here's the thing. Of all the friends that I had in high school, of all the parents that I knew that were still on their first marriage, there were probably only a couple that I could honestly say they still loved each other and they were still growing in their marriage relationship together. The rest of them were together because culturally they felt like divorce wasn't the right option. And while that's commendable at some level, I think it's fair to say that the vast majority of those marriages that I knew growing up were not healthy. And I'm guessing that you could say the same thing. You could say the same thing for a lot of marriages that you know. Perhaps, perhaps if we're being honest, you could say the same thing about your marriage. Oftentimes, at least this was the case for my friends growing up and their parents, the couple may tolerate each other, but there's not a sense that the marriage is thriving and growing. I say all that to say this. In recent years, our culture has begun to question more and more the wisdom of a passage like Colossians 3. Even in most American churches, we are afraid of passages like this. If you want to know why most, or why most churches don't go expositionally through Scripture, meaning just book by book, verse by verse, is because they want to avoid passages like this. That's the honest truth, I think. It's become out of fashion to talk about these types of things, even in the church. But what I'm arguing is that if you look at the marriages around us, maybe, just maybe, the culture doesn't know what it's talking about. We are supposedly more enlightened. We are supposedly more informed. And yet the further we get away from what the Bible says, the worse our marriages seem to be. Perhaps it's not the Bible that's out of touch. Perhaps it's us. Perhaps the issue is our sin and not the Bible. So I would just say this to the objection that this is out of date and irrelevant. I would actually argue the opposite. This is perfectly a message for our time. This is exactly what we need to hear. Objection number two goes like this. Any command that is grouped with a command to slaves can't be taken seriously. I've heard this objection multiple times also. And this is a serious objection and one that we need to consider carefully. The argument goes like this. If the Bible condones slavery, and in Colossians 3, it talks about slavery, clearly we, and clearly we know that slavery is wrong, we can't take other things it says seriously either. Now, I'm going to address that objection at length in two weeks when we talk about slaves and masters. 
But I think what you need to know is that when people say that, they're not understanding what the Bible is actually saying about slavery. The Bible is not condoning slavery. In fact, in two weeks, I'm going to make the argument there, there are multiple reasons to believe that the Bible did not condone slavery. In fact, it would preach against it in some cases. I don't think that the Bible is condoning slavery. It's just giving rules for an institution that was already in place. Douglas Moo says this about Colossians 3, 22 to 4, 1, which is the passage about slaves and masters. He says this, this passage does not endorse slavery. It simply addresses an institution that happened to be a significant element of ancient society. Now, this slavery argument is actually a really popular one when people want to dismiss the Bible. They say, well, if the Bible talks about slavery, it must be wrong about a lot of things. But I think that that argument is actually a lot more flash than it is substance. Because when a person says that, I think they're betraying the fact that they don't really understand how the Bible is teaching about slavery, including in this Colossians 3 passage. So we'll have much more to say about that in two weeks, but I think that we shouldn't dismiss, we shouldn't simply dismiss this command to husbands and wives because it says something about slavery. The fact is, I don't think the Bible is condoning slavery. And therefore, we don't need to dismiss other commands that are connected to it. All right, here's objection number three. Someone might say this, there's a great risk that a passage like this could be misused. So perhaps we can just avoid it altogether. This argument goes like this. Many men who claim to be Christians have misused verses like this to justify verbal abuse, physical abuse, and even sexual abuse. And therefore, the argument goes, it's just best if we avoid it altogether. And listen, listen, this is a serious issue in our culture. If you've been paying attention to the news this week, You've probably heard about the Ray Rice case, the NFL player who was arrested for domestic violence, and how the NFL, the National Football League, has terribly mishandled his case. And if you've seen the video of Rice hitting his then fiance, you know how despicable domestic violence is when you see it in action. And as a church, we should be very concerned about domestic violence, and specifically violence that's directed at women and children. But let's be clear, verses like Colossians 3, 18 and 19 are not the reason why domestic violence happens amongst people who claim to be Christians. Russell Moore this week wrote an article entitled The Church and Violence Against Women, and he says this, an abusive man is not an overenthusiastic complementarian. He is not a complementarian at all. He's rejecting male headship because he's rejecting his role as provider and protector. And so some people will say, well, because of verses like Colossians 3, 18 and 19, there are men who are abusive. And I would say that is not the case at all. Now, is it possible that a husband could take Colossians 3, 18 and 19 and use it to justify beating his wife? Well, of course. But the person who does that doesn't understand Colossians 3, 18 and 19 any more than my two-year-old daughter understands War and Peace, the classic book by whatever his name is. I forget off the top of my head, right? But that's the point that clearly my two-year-old daughter is not going to understand that book. But the person who says, oh, I understand Colossians 3, 18 and 19, then they use that to justify abusing their wife. That person has no sense at all. They do not understand this passage at all. And just because there's a risk that someone could take it out of context and abuse it doesn't mean we should stop preaching a doctrine. Surely, for example, in relation to Colossians 3, 20 and 21, we wouldn't argue that parents should stop instructing their children or that children should stop obeying their parents because some have misused those commands to abuse their children. We wouldn't make that argument. We wouldn't say, well, let's just get rid of Colossians 3, 20, and 21 because some have misused those verses. We wouldn't do that. Listen, the problem is not Colossians 3, 18, and 19. It's sinful people twisting scriptures like it. As the old saying goes, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. 
And for the record, I've thought about that phrase a lot. I really don't know where that came from. That is a really weird phrase, but you probably know what it means, right? Let's not throw out what's valuable just because some have misused it. Now, here's the reason I bring up all those objections. Because I know that these are arguments that our culture are making because I've heard them personally myself. And I know for some of you, I know for some of you that in the past you've had troubles taking commands like this seriously because of objections like this that you may have. To say it like I said earlier, for some of you, these objections are like legitimate pebbles in your shoe. It's hard for you to figure out how to live this out until you can get rid of those pebbles. And so my hope is that by addressing those, some of the pebbles were thrown to the side. But listen, even if you had no objections coming in, I still think it's worthwhile to discuss these. And here's why. Because at some point, you may find yourself in a situation where you have to defend why you believe what you believe. Maybe you'll be with non-believers. Maybe you'll be with a young believer trying to learn what it means to have a healthy marriage. But listen, whatever you came in, I I think it's worthwhile for us to discuss these things. And I think it's worthwhile for us to conclude this. I do not think that this passage is out of date. I do not think this passage is irrelevant. In fact, I would make the argument it's more relevant than ever. Like all of Scripture, these verses are more precious than gold or silver. So here's how I'd like for us to spend the rest of our time then. I'd like for us to first of all talk about the command given to wives, then the command given to husbands, and then finally why I think this matters. But before we do that, let me, let me just make one more statement here. Some of you in this room today are single, all right? I, I know that um, some of you, for crying out loud, are in sixth grade, okay? And so you're thinking to yourself, oh man, this is going to be a long, however long this sermon's going to last. It cannot get over fast enough, right? Some of you are thinking, why am I here? Why didn't I just stay home and watch the football game today, Okay? So if you're single, let me say this. I think this passage is still worthwhile. And let me tell you why. First of all, there's a chance that someday you may be married. And the more you can have a biblical understanding of marriage beforehand, the better off you'll be. I'm convinced of it. And so even if you're in sixth grade, I'm I'm telling you, you're in the right place today. Because starting now, you need to start having an understanding of this is what biblical marriage looks like. You need to understand what a biblical marriage should look like, okay? But here's the other thing I would say. Even if you feel like you're never going to get married, listen, even if you feel like you're called to a life of singleness, you will always have friends who are married. And if you understand a passage like this, you can be a better friend to them. As you give counsel, as you help them process through issues, you can speak in a way that reflects the biblical vision for marriage and not just your own vision. And so listen, even... Even if you're here today and you're single and you're like, I'm not going to get married for another 15 years. Like, what am I doing here? I just want you to know this passage is still relevant. And so wherever you are, whatever background you have, I think this passage means something for you. So all that said, let's dive into what the passage says. All right, verse 18. Let's look first at what Paul says to wives. He says this, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, There's actually a passage in Ephesians chapter 5 that is a great parallel passage. In Ephesians 5 and 6, much of what we read in Colossians 3, 18 to 4, 1 is paralleled exactly. But in the Ephesians 5 passage, especially as it relates to marriage, there's much more detail. And so we're going to spend a lot of time today in Ephesians chapter 5. So turn back, if you will, just two books to the left. Or if you have your, your phone, just type in Ephesians 5, right? Ephesians 5. We're going to look at verse 22 to 24 here. This Ephesians 5 passage is really important. And it's important because I think it helps us to better understand what's happening in Colossians 3. All right, here we go. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, the reason why I had to spend so much time with the objections and so much time talking about all this background is because of the presence of one word in Colossians 3. It shows up three times in Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 24, and it's the word submit. All right, let's just be honest. If I were to go to Times Square next week, and I were to hold up a sign in the middle of Times Square that said, wives, submit to your husbands, which, by the way, is taken directly from Colossians 3, right? If I were to hold that up, can we be honest and just say I would not be the most popular person in Times Square? And I probably would not have a parade that would be thrown for me. In fact, if anything, I would be chased out of there and mocking and ridicule. What is it about this word submit that drives people crazy? I think in part it's because we don't understand what the word means. There are a lot of misconceptions about this command. I think oftentimes, um, someone was telling me this about the women's retreat, that the speaker said that oftentimes when we think of submission, we think it means less than or subservient. But that's not the case at all. That's not what submission means. And so let me just say this. Before, we, before I tell you what I think it does mean, let me tell you what I think it does not mean. Wives submitting to their husbands does not mean that women are inferior or less important than men. I think this is the biggest issue with the word submit. People assume that submission means inferiority, but nothing could be further from the truth. Submission is an issue of roles to play, not an issue of importance. Both men and women were created in the image of God and as such are equal in value and equal in dignity. I hope you heard me. We are equal in value and equal in dignity. We are both created in the image of God. But that does not mean that men and women are interchangeable in terms of the roles we play. We are meant to complement one another. Again, hence the term complementarianism. Now, again, let me stress this difference does not mean there's a difference in equality. And the primary way I can defend that statement is by pointing to Jesus Christ. Jesus, 1 Corinthians 11 would tell us, was in a position of submission to the Father. This is the very argument that 1 Corinthians 11 makes, that Jesus was under the authority of the Father. And yet we would never make the argument that Jesus is less than the Father. If we did make that argument, we would be heretics. Because we believe that there is one God in three persons. That they are equal in value, but they did have different roles to play. And Jesus was was to submit to the Father. That did not mean a lack of equality, it just meant a different role to play. The same is true for wives. Uh, I was reading uh, in preparation for our parenting class a couple weeks ago, an author from Capitol Hill Baptist said, it always surprises him when people are so opposed to this idea of submission when Jesus, in fact, submitted to the Father. I think that that's a great point, right? Submission is not in and of itself a negative term. And for the record, every person in this room, both man and women, or men and women, will have to submit, right? For example, you have to submit to your boss or you have to submit to government authorities, or you have to submit to church leadership. And of course, all of us submit to Christ. By the way, all those examples are taken from Scripture. And so all of us submit at one point or another. So let's be clear, submission is not a bad word. If you don't like submission, then you don't know what it is to be a Christian, because every person must submit to Christ. Submission is not a bad word. It's a part of every Christian's life. It's a role to play. And in marriage, it's the role for wives to play. So when we talk about wives submitting, we're not talking about inferiority. Hear me clearly, all right? 
Here's another thing we're not saying. When we're talking about submission, we're not saying that women submit to every man. Look at Ephesians 5 again. All right, Ephesians 5, verse 22. says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Women, Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 is not calling you to submit to every man. We're talking about specifically submitting to your husband. Now again, there may be times where you submit to other people in the cases of bosses, government authorities, church leadership. But outside of those cases, or in cases like those, if any man ever tries to use a passage like this to convince you that you must submit to him, and that person is not your husband, that person doesn't understand this scripture. One other thing I would say, submission doesn't mean that you are just silent and a wallflower. Part of a husband leading the family well is learning to listen to the wisdom that his wife possesses. In fact, part of a husband leading his family well is oftentimes acknowledging that his wife has more wisdom than he does. In fact, in my case, that's oftentimes the case. Where I just have to acknowledge Tanya knows way more than I do on this issue. And part of being a good leader is acknowledging that that is the case. I heard Wade and Grudem say this years ago, and it stuck with me. He said, it may be true that the husband is the head of the family, but it's true that the head has ears. It's true, I think, that we should acknowledge that our wives have incredible wisdom. That said, all those disclaimers aside, what do we mean by submission? Again, let me quote Douglas Moo. He says this, Submission is to voluntarily put oneself under the authority or direction of someone else or something else. Let me say that again. To voluntarily put oneself under the authority or direction of someone else or something else. It's notable in this passage in Colossians that he tells children to obey parents. He tells slaves to obey masters but he tells wives to submit to husbands. There's a difference between submitting and obeying. To obey implies that you have little choice in the matter. When we tell our kids to go to bed, they obey. Right? They don't have a choice. They are going to bed when we tell them to. Now they may fight it, right? But theoretically they should obey. I should say that. Theoretically they obey and they go to bed, right? But to submit is different because it means voluntarily and willingly recognizing someone else's authority and putting yourself under that authority. Submission is the wife choosing to look to her husband as the leader, the head, the one to follow. Now, this does not mean, for example, in our marriage, that I always pick the restaurant or the movie. That that is just a misunderstanding. In fact, if you look at the role of the husband, it means that oftentimes I will put, in fact, every time I will put my wife's needs ahead of mine. That's what it means to be a good, godly leader, is that you are looking to meet the interests of your spouse and your kids. And so it does not mean that, but what it does mean is that when we make decisions, our family major decisions, Tanya gives me input, gives me wisdom, and ultimately she follows my lead. Now, I will admit, it's very difficult for me to talk about the issue of submission. And so uh, at the end of the sermon, before we leave, Tanya's going to come up and I'm going to interview her. Uh, because we're just going to talk about what does this look like in real life, and you're going to get her perspective. And so if you're a woman and you're here today and you're like, oh, great, why is he telling me this? He doesn't know anything about it. Then just wait. You can tune out for a little bit, and then Tanya will come up. Actually, don't tune out because I'm about to talk to husbands. You want to hear this part too, all right? Um, But Tanya will come up, and I think that will be helpful for you just to figure out what do we mean practically, okay? So all that said, let me me turn our attention to the men. All right, so here we go. Like, I I know that some of you are like, why are we talking about this? But we need to hear this, right? Like, and, and the wives, you're thinking, why are we talking so much about submission? This part of the passage is just as important. And I would argue that to live out this part of Colossians 3 is actually more difficult. Now, look at Colossians 3, verse 19 again. It says this, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, this is actually a countercultural command. 
If you go back and look at all of the ancient household codes, Christianity is the only religion that tells husbands to love their wives. Every other ancient household code would tell husbands to exercise authority over their wives. But Christianity says, love your wives. And you realize how countercultural this is when you read the Ephesians 5 passage. Again, the parallel passage starting in verse 25. Listen carefully to this. This is what it says to husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So if we're to summarize what we read here in Ephesians 5, Husbands, your role is to love your wife in the same way that Christ loved the church. And that's the thing with Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. People want to make a really big deal about the first half of those passages, right? And they want to say, well, why is it telling wives to submit to husbands? And there is no doubt that submission can be very difficult. But it seems to me that the harder half of this passage, the most difficult part of this passage is reserved for husbands. They are to love their wives in the same way that Christ loved the church. Do you realize how difficult that is? Have you ever thought about how Christ loved the church? I hope you have. Because the way that he loved the church is incredible. Right? He loved the church sacrificially. He laid down his life for us who are believers. And by the, when we talk about church, we're not talking about a building. We're talking about believers. Christ laid down his life for the church. Christ loved the church even when we did not deserve it. Romans 5 tells us that Christ died for us while we were still his enemies. Christ loved the church not by looking to his own interests, but to ours. The reason he laid down his life is so that we could have life. Christ loved the church intentionally. That's Ephesians 5, right? He loved the church with the purpose of cleansing and sanctifying the church. And the command of Ephesians 5 is that husbands, you are to love your wives in the same way. So let me put that in the context of my marriage, right? So I, for example, am to love Tanya sacrificially. I'm to love her sacrificially. So let me, let me just try to give some practical examples, all right? Let's say that I've had a, a long day of meetings, and I'm just emotionally taxed, right? And I'm, I'm physically worn out, and I come home, and I would like nothing more than just to sit on the couch for a minute of peace and quiet, right? And I'd like to just read or do whatever. But I know in that moment that what Tanya really needs is for me to watch the kids for just an hour or two, or to play with them, or to pick up the house, or do whatever. In those moments... If I am living out biblical marriage, I will set aside my own interest and I will serve my wife. I'll serve my wife. And the reason I will do it is because this is exactly what Jesus did for me. I will delight in serving her and sacrificing my own interest because Jesus delighted in sacrificing his interest for us. Furthermore, if I'm following Christ's example, I will love Tanya even when she does not deserve it or even when I feel like she doesn't deserve it. There may be times where we are in an argument and I'm convinced that I am right. may happen. It does happen, in fact. And the truth is, maybe I'm right and maybe I'm wrong. But as the husband, listen, as the husband, it is my responsibility to take the initiative in reconciliation. Why? Because this is what Jesus did. Right? Even though we were his enemies, he took the initiative in reconciliation. And there have been many times where I've been thinking about Ephesians 5 as I'm stewing in my anger, laying in the bed, and I've realized it is my job to reconcile. 
I need to love my wife like Christ loved the church. And the thing that's so hard is I'm so convinced that I'm right. I'm so convinced that she should apologize first. And then I realize, you know what? It doesn't matter. Because Christ reached out to us before we apologized. Right? He reached out to us before we'd done anything. And so if I'm loving my wife like Christ loves the church, I reach out. I initiate. Even when I feel like she doesn't deserve it. Now, for the record, just just to clear things up, most of the time, Tanya probably is right. It takes me a while to come around to it, but she probably is right, right? But even in those moments where she is wrong or where I feel like she doesn't deserve it, it's still my job. Not only that, but if I'm loving Tanya like Christ loved the church, I will look to her interests and not my own. As a husband, I need to intentionally be thinking about meeting her needs. How can I encourage her? How can I make her feel loved? How can I spur her on? Sometimes it's as simple as on a date night or as we're planning vacation, I ask this question, what would make Tanya happy? What would bring her joy? That is part of me exercising Christ-like leadership. Most importantly, I think if we look at this Ephesians 5 passage, we would say that to love our wives like Christ loves the church means that we are intentional in washing them and sanctifying them. In other words, we are intentional in pointing them to Christ. Listen, it is my job to make sure that Tanya is growing in a relationship with Christ. It is my job to do everything I can. Now, ultimately, it would, it's God who will grow her, right? But it's my job to do everything I can to help her grow in a relationship with Christ. So husbands, let me ask you this. Is your wife more in love with Christ because of you? Does your wife pursue Christ because of your love and because of your example? Is your wife more familiar with the grace and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ because of the way that you love her? If not, you may not be loving her like Christ loved the church. Men, if we would love our wives in this way, then I'm convinced that the first half of this passage would be beautiful and attractive to our wives. If we were truly, our, truly loving our wives in this way, that Christ loved the church, we would make the command for wives to submit not only a task that they would do because they know they should, but rather one that they would love. Now that said, I do think it's important to point out that both of these commands are independent of one another. In other words, wives, you are called to submit whether your husband loves you or not. Husbands, you are called to love whether your wife submits or not. Now, I would offer one disclaimer. If, if you are a wife and your husband is asking you to do something sinful or something that's against the word of God, in those cases, of course, you are not required to follow your husband. You must obey God rather than men. But otherwise, this is your role. And you are to do so out of love for Christ. Look at Colossians 3.18 one more time. I think this is a really important phrase that Paul throws in. He says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. The reason you submit, wives, is not because your husband deserves it. It's because Christ deserves it. And ultimately, submission is not about you trusting your husband, although I hope you can. It's about trusting Christ and trusting that God knows what is best for you. And he knows what is best for marriage. So whether or not your husband does his job, this is your role. And the opposite is true as well. Husbands, even if your wife despises Colossians 3.18, you are still to love her like Christ loves the church. Even if your wife were to literally cut Colossians 3.18 out of her Bible and throw it in the fire, just as an act of showing you she's not going to follow this, you are still to love her like Christ loved the church. This is your job, husbands. This is your job, wives. This is what we are called to. And not just theoretically, but in reality, this is what we're called to. Are you doing this? Are you doing this? I think we have to admit the possibility that if God really is greater than us, if he really is infinitely wise, that he might know something about marriage that our modern day 
way of thinking does not. Right? I, think, I think we could all agree, if that's true, if God is who he claims to be, then he might know something about how marriage is meant to be. So my question is, wives, are you submitting to your husbands? Husbands, are you loving your wives? And let me just conclude by telling you why I think this issue matters. Right? Some of you are like, well, I don't know if it's that big a deal. No, listen, this is a huge deal. And the reason why is because the issue of marriage, and the issue of marriage, there's nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ at stake. Look at the way the Ephesians 5 passage ends. Right, one more time in Ephesians 5, verses 31 to 33. This issue of roles in marriage, this issue of marriage is so crucial because nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake. Verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now verses 31 to 33 are extraordinary for multiple reasons. Verse 31 alone is loaded with truths, right? Verse 31 reminds us the marriage is between a husband and a wife. Well, that's certainly relevant for our culture. Verse 31 teaches that when a man and a woman marry, they need to leave their father and mother. Many marriages have gone astray over the years because people have forgotten that principle. In fact, I'd venture to say that some marriages in here are in difficult straits because you have not left your father and mother. The mother-in-law or the father-in-law still has too big of an influence in your marriage. Not only that, verse 31 says that when two become married, they become one. I mean, that is really profound, right? But of all the profound truths in Ephesians 5, verse 32 is the most profound. Again, it says this, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, what exactly is verse 32 saying? For much of Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, he's been talking about husbands and wives and the roles they play, and now he talks about Christ and the church. What is he talking about? Well, here's what I think he is saying. I think what he's saying is the whole reason we have marriage is because it's meant to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. The meaning of marriage is to point us to Jesus and the church. And if you get that, marriage will become infinitely more important in your mind. Think about the implications of that statement. If we're saying that marriage is meant to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church, then every time a marriage ends in divorce, what we're saying to the world around us is that the relationship between Christ and the church doesn't last forever. If we're saying that it's a picture of Christ and the church, when a husband fails to love his wife, he is saying that Christ doesn't really love the church. If a wife fails to submit to her husband, she is saying the church doesn't really need to submit to Christ. When a marriage is lifeless and cold, what we're saying to the world around us is that the love between Christ and the church is cold and nothing could be further from the truth, right? Marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. When a marriage is centered around Christ and we are living out these roles correctly, it screams out to the culture around us, this is what Christ's love for the church looks like. And so we may dismiss this and say, well, it's not really that big a deal. I'm just going to do it on my own. But I would say, no, we can't do that. We must look to what the word says and we must recognize that marriage is a picture of the gospel and that reminds us that marriage is not ultimate christ is what some of you need today more than an accurate picture of marriage as helpful as that may be is you need an understanding of the love of christ you need to understand christ's love for his bride you need to understand that you can have the benefits of being in a relationship with him if you will turn from your sin and trust him that you can have forgiveness of sins, that you can have peace with God, that you can have eternal life. Listen, marriage is not ultimate, Christ is. Marriage matters because Christ does, but marriage is not ultimate, Christ is. 
And so for some of you today, this marriage part is secondary to the fact that you need to know the love that Jesus has for you. Listen, I want you to know that I love marriage. And it's not because it's easy. It's not. It's not because I have a great wife, although I do. But it's because I love the fact that it's a picture of Christ in the church. And listen, that is a picture that is worth talking about, even if it's a picture that is not very popular. Let's pray, and then I'll ask Tanya to come up. Uh, Father, uh, we're, again, just acknowledging your word is wise, and that your word will do whatever you want for it to accomplish. And so, Father, we are praying that all these truths we've been talking about, we're praying that they would just work our way into our hearts and that you would accomplish all that we need to. Father, we love you. We're praying now that as we transition to the time of me talking with Tanya, I'm praying that you would use this as a blessing to the congregation, as a blessing to the body here at New Hope. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. For those of you who don't know, this is, this is my wife, Tanya. Uh, she is by far my favorite person ever to interview, okay? Um, and also the most beautiful, I would say, as well. Now, one thing you need to know is the reason I asked Tony up is not because we are like the paragon of a perfect marriage, all right? Um, it's not that I'm some unbelievable example that I never fail in loving my wife like Christ loves the church or that Tanya never fails to submit like uh, it talks about in Colossians 3. We, we are far from perfect, but by God's grace, I think we're growing in this. And, and to be honest, also, it would be awkward for me to interview anyone else, right? So even though we may not have the perfect marriage, um, of course, the only person I feel comfortable talking about this with is Tanya. And so, uh, listen, hear us. This is not like, hey, we're like the perfect marriage. Like, just listen to us. But hopefully, by God's grace, some of the mistakes we've made and some of the things we've done, hopefully this will be helpful. The, the fact of the matter is, I think it will be especially helpful for those of you who are wives or someday will be wives to hear from her, her perspective. Um, it's easy for me to talk about it, but it's, it's much different for her having lived out her half of the command. So... Um, Tanya, let me, let me just start by asking, like, when you think of submission, when you think of, of what it means for a wife to submit to your husband, what, what do you think that looks like? Uh, well, obviously, Ryan's already shared a lot of things that um, I obviously completely agree with what he said. But a few other things that I think I would add to what submission looks like in a marriage is that submission isn't about being right. Sometimes we think that um, when we have a difference in opinion on an issue that I've got to prove that this is right, and we fight for that, and we fight for that, but submission is more important than being right. Being right is secondary, so that's one thing I'd say. That's not about being right. Um, The second thing I'd say is that submission isn't just about our actions and what we do. We can totally look like we're being submissive on the outside, but inwardly, our heart, our attitude is not submissive at all. Um, And another thing I'd say that it what it doesn't look like is that it doesn't mean I don't have a voice. I mean, you guys all, most of you know me. I'm loud. Like, I'm, I have a very wild personality, and so it doesn't mean I have to be quiet and never speak what I think, but it does mean that my voice, my opinion, it changes. Um, and so, for instance, if Ryan wanted A and I wanted B, I get to offer up all the reasons why I think we should do B. I get to give my insights, um, my thoughts about it. I get to share my heart, why I think we should do B. But when Ryan makes the final decision to go with A, my voice changes. And my voice now goes and turns to support his decision. So although I didn't want A, and now it becomes I'm going to go with A because he chose it and I support that decision. So one of the things you mentioned is just a difference maybe between attitude and actions. 
Um, perhaps you can just expand on that a little bit. What, what's the difference between those two? Yeah, I actually think that um, for most wives, this is probably where we fail the most. We might submit in the fact that we say, well, we'll let him make that decision. But when he makes that decision, our hearts are totally against it. And we're just sitting there just clenching our teeth, just really upset that they made that final decision. And um, it's kind of like a child. And when they say, you, know, you tell them to sit on the ground, and they're like, well, I'm sitting on the outside, but inwardly I'm standing up. And that's the way we, we look at submission sometimes. We go with the decision, but our hearts are still very, very opposed to that. And I think that can come out in many areas, but primarily the areas I've seen in my own life and in other women's lives is um, two areas. Is one in our relationship with other women. Uh, when we gather together as women, if we start talking about our husbands, be so very careful. Um, oftentimes we show our unsubmissive hearts in the way that we talk about our spouses to one another. Uh, it might be very passive-aggressive. It might be kind of clothed with spirituality of saying, hey, will you, will you pray for my husband? He just doesn't seem to understand this area. Um, I'm guilty of that. I'm not saying that I've never failed in this, but um, that is not really painting our husbands in a way that is honoring to them and showing that we're submitting to their decision in that area. Um, it's very passive-aggressive, and um, we can be very critical about the decisions that they've made to other women in our lives. And um, So I would say that's a caution I would give. Another area that I think that... Um, our hearts aren't actually being submissive, our actions may say it, but our hearts aren't, is towards our spouse. You know, if Ryan chose A, and I still am very opposed to it, but I've gone along with it, um, I'm, I might be waiting for him to fail. I might be waiting for him to come and realize, oh, ha, ha, no, I was actually the right one. And that shows a non-submissive heart. And that's not honoring to the Lord. And then, after he does come around and realize that he, he may be chose the wrong thing, um, I might hold that over his head and say, I told you so. You should have listened to me. And again, that's not a submissive heart. That is going against that. That was, that was our decision together. He made the final decision, but I was supposed to come along with him and support that decision. Yeah, and I, I think for the record, like husbands, we should learn as we make poor decisions, right? Just because maybe Tony has that type of attitude, attitude doesn't mean I can't learn from past poor mistakes that I made, right? And it doesn't mean that we, we won't even discuss those. We might, we might discuss those together, but it's her attitude in that discussion I think is helpful. And hopefully my attitude too, that I'm being Christ-like in my actions towards her. So maybe, maybe it'd be helpful for everybody just if you could give an example of a time where you've had to submit. I think most of the time, we're on the same page about most major things. So this, this doesn't even come into play all that often, but it might be helpful for everyone just to know, like, what's an example of a time where you've had to do that in our marriage? Yeah, so, um, like Ryan said at the beginning, I don't sit up here. I don't want you guys to ever think that I've, I've mastered this. I don't. Because of the fall, that's our curse as women, that we will desire our husband. It's not talking about the good desire. It's desiring control over our husband. So I, I sit up here as a fallen, broken woman. But there has been... Uh, many times where I've failed, and, but recently there was a situation that came that, uh, about our housing situation that Ryan and I were on completely different pages. We were totally against what each other wanted. He wanted this and I, I wanted that, and um, I, was very, I was pretty strong about how I felt about it. Even like my emotions were invoked from it. I, I really felt very strongly about this. And we went out to dinner one night, and um, Ryan took the time to ask me questions of why I felt so strongly that I wanted this. Um, he wanted to really get to the, the depths of the emotions of why, of what was going on. 
Um, and so at the end of the night, we had kind of made the decision that um, we were going to go with what Ryan thought, even though I still did not agree at all with the decision. Um, and the next day, I, I just asked him, hey, you know, I won't talk about this again, but are you absolutely positive that that's the right decision? And he, he said back to me, you know, I, I do think it's the right decision, but maybe I'm not seeing this clearly. So I will seek counsel outside of our marriage. And so he actually sought counsel for about four guys. And after that counsel came back, he still went with his decision. But um, through that, when the final decision was made, even though it wasn't what I wanted, when the final decision was made, I was able to be okay with it. And it wasn't that it was because that's, okay, I finally understood why he wanted that. It wasn't. But it's was rather I began to see, I don't know what's best for us. You know, I might think that this is best for us, but do I really know what's best for our family? Um, but the Lord does. And the Lord is leading my husband, so I can trust that. The other reason why it was easy to submit is because he listened. He listened very well. And he listened so well that he even sought counsel outside of our marriage. So that made it easy for me to submit as well. So that was one, one that we both, I think, handled it well. Yeah, and we could probably give a lot more examples where we both have handled it oh, poorly, yes. just for the record. Um, but we thought it might be more instructive to hear a good example of how we've done it well. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we've definitely had our, our share of mistakes over the years. What, as you think about wives and just this, this issue in Colossians 3, 18, like, what, what might be some advice that you have for them um, in terms of, like, how do they live this out? Yeah. Um, so for women, I think there's three, three points of advice that um, have encouraged me and I hope would encourage you as well. The first off, Ryan, um, I think really brought home well was um, we have to look to the cross. You know, that is the whole motivation for why we submit. It's not because we're told to do it, although sometimes we do have to just do it. But the motivation for why I'm willing to submit to Ryan is because I look to the one who submitted perfectly. Um, if I'm in a, in a moment where I, I find myself kind of pushing against that, pushing against that, if I just withdraw for a little bit of time and reflect on how Christ submitted perfectly out of love for me, um, if, I, if I really meditate on the great um, sacrifice that he was willing to do on, on my behalf, that, makes, that brings up love and, and joy and praise to Christ, which makes me then want to reciprocate that towards him. Um, so that's the first thing I'd say, is just look to the Christ, look, look to the cross where Christ submitted perfectly. The second thing I'd say is um, confess. You know, uh, when I fail to submit to Ryan, Although that is a sin against him, that's ultimately a sin against the Lord. Because what I'm saying in that moment when I don't agree with Ryan's decision and I'm, I'm pushing against it, what I'm saying to the Lord is that I don't agree with the way you've designed marriage. I'm saying this beautiful design of headship and submission, it's not, it's not right for us. And that's sin, to go against what God has designed. It's also saying to him that I don't trust you, Lord. I don't trust you to direct my husband's heart. Uh, Proverbs 21.1 talks about how the Lord um, guides the hearts of king, kings like a water stream, whichever way he wants it to go. And if the Lord can guide the heart of a king, he will guide my husband's heart. And so I can trust the Lord in it. So the first thing I'd say is um, that you would look to the cross. Second thing is confess the sin of not trusting the Lord. So confess it to, you, to the Lord and confess it to your spouse. I know that's sometimes tough to do, to admit our flaws to our spouses. Um, but it's important we've sinned against them. And the third thing I'd say is pray. 
pray fervently. We are not capable of changing our own hearts. If we think we have, that's just moralism, if we're doing it all on our own. But we need the Lord to interact on our behalf and change us. And so pray pray for um, just unity at the beginning. There's decisions that are going to come into your life. Just pray that even before those decisions come, you are already on the same page. So there's no issue of submission, that you're already there. Um, when an issue does come up that you, that you are going to have to submit, Pray for your heart, not your spouse's heart, but pray for your heart to come in line with what your spouse's decision is, whether it is what you want or what you don't want, but pray for your heart primarily. And then I'd say the, thing, the third thing to pray for is um, just pray for the situation. Pray for discernment and understanding and clarity for what is really happening in that. For men, my advice would be is... Um, you can make this a lot easier for us. You know, it is our, we, are, we are called to submit whether you make it easy or not, but you can make it easy by, by having ears to hear, by listening intently to us. First Peter 3, 7, I think, talks about likewise, husbands, um, live in your wife in an understanding way. And living in an understanding way means that you listen to us. Now, that doesn't mean, wives, that we need to take advantage of that and, and start, you know, being that dripping faucet that Proverbs talks about, that we're, like, constantly nagging on them and saying, you have to listen to me, you have to listen to me. That's not what it means. But if, if um, husbands, if you listen to your wives and try and understand where they're coming from, um, that might be the means by which God helps you make your decision, but it'll also help us submit to you as well. Mm-hmm. I think the thing we need to understand is that ultimately there's always joy in following God's commands. Even if, even if we feel like, um, from a cultural standpoint, oh, this doesn't make any sense. And to some degree, like when I started looking at this passage and started thinking about how I was preaching, I thought, you know, it's going to feel like I'm completely countercultural, right? You're, some people are going to think today, oh, he's just straight out of the 1950s or something. Like, but listen, um, Christianity from the very beginning has always been countercultural. Always. In fact, what set them apart is how they treated each other in their marriages. What set them apart is how they cared for those who were on the outskirts of society, the weak and the defenseless. It was how they loved their spouses, how they loved their kids. That's what's always set Christianity apart. And so um, ultimately this issue for both of us is less about how our wife or how our spouse deserves us to treat them this way and more about how we trust that God knows what he's talking about. And so submission, as I said in the sermon, is ultimately less about Tony trusting me and more about Tony trusting Christ. And me loving Tony is less about her being lovable and more about how Christ loved us, right? And so, um, listen, I know that for some of you, this will be something you'll be wrestling with all week. For some of you, you're like, I'm preaching to the choir, literally, right? Like, you're like, yes, like, you will, you will, you will talk about this all week. Um, so, wherever you are, I just pray that, that you would pray, God, help me to understand what this means. Help me to live this out. Help me ultimately to trust you. That's ultimately what we're wanting to communicate, is that this is ultimately an issue of us trusting God. And so, um, yeah, I want, again, for every example where we've done it well, we could give a thousand more where we've done it poorly. But by God's grace, I think this is something we're growing in. If you have questions afterwards, please come find us. Um, please know that this is an issue. We, I, like I said in the, in the message, I love marriage. Um, it's not just because we have like the ultimately perfect marriage, but it's because marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. And so in my opinion, few things matter more than this. And so if you have questions, please let us know. We'd love to entertain those questions. And, and Tanya, I know, would love to talk as well if you have further questions about what she said. Okay, all that to say, the reason we talk about this is because it points to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let me, let me pray one more time, and then the worship team will come up and lead us in one last worship song. Um, <clears throat> Father, we... Yeah, we... We do want to worship, and we do want to make much of you. Uh, We want to make sure that in everything we do, including our marriage, that we are pointing people to you. And so, Father, help us. 
Help us in this time to make sure that uh, this time of worship is not about us, it's not even about marriage. It's ultimately about your son dying on the cross for our sins. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.